Welcome to Book Reporter Talks To, a podcast from the Book Report Network, where we host in-depth conversations with authors about the books that we love. We know authors cannot travel everywhere, so we want to bring them to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to a very special episode of our show, or really our year-end show, where instead of talking to an author, I am going to be talking about my 44 84, bets on selections for 2023. I never go into a year saying, oh, this is how many books I'm going to pick. There's no number in mind. And instead I read and I think about what I would say I am betting that our book reporter readers are going to love. So with that, let's hear the, the picks that I've got for this year. I'm going to start with three books that I have been recommending when people ask, just give me three. First up, we have Lady Tan's Circle of Women by Lisa C. I've read all of Lisa's historical novels, and I'm happy to say that this, I feel, is her best book to date. Honestly, if you told me that I was going to enjoy reading a book that was about a woman practicing medicine in the 15th century, I would have said, come on, you've got to be kidding. I would really doubt it. But Lisa weaves a story of these esteemed families and those who surround them, sharing details that made me feel like I was living in their homes with them, in these palatial homes. The culture of these times, with its strict rules about what women could and could not do, it's another culture also about how people of a certain standing are not allowed to do things like touch blood or come in contact with blood, including doctors. I know we're really talking about a different time in history. So in this book, Tan has been trained as a doctor by with knowledge that has been passed down to her by her grandmother. And it makes her really exceptional for her time. Lisa's in-depth, really in-depth research infuses what makes this book so terrific. And it doesn't bog it down. She's got that gentle touch. Woven into the story is a mystery. And it's not something that you would expect but the way that it's dealt with is giving you insight into how investigations are unfolded and how justice is meted out. Oh, and uh, you know, if you did not read Snowflower and the Secret Fan, well, you'll find yourself Googling foot binding in this book. If you did read it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Your memories will be cropping up. So Lady Tan Circle of Women, my first bets on that I think people are gonna really enjoy. Next up, we've got Homecoming by Kate Morton. Now, this is a tome of a book. I mean, really, this is a tome of a book. And for no, at no time did I feel like I was slogged down or, oh my gosh, why is this book so long? She really did a terrific job of telling the story. So yes, it's been five years since Kate's last book. And during the early days of the pandemic in 2020, she's living in London and they decided to go home to Australia. And when they got there, she was living with her children and she said, you know, we're living on this farm. The book I was started to write when we were in the UK isn't really working for me right now. So what do I want to write about? Well, she often says that what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a story that's really kind of start kind of starting with setting. And that's what really happens here. So what you've got is a young woman who has left home from London to go to Australia to help out with her grandmother who's in rough shape. And 
she's um, talking about pressure. Like she has to feel like she's got to go there to help out her grandmother. But like, really, she's kind of estranged from these people and she's estranged from her mother. So now it's 2018 and the town that they live in is still plagued by an accident. Well, an accident or a murder that happened to the Turner family. It's called the Turner family tragedy of Christmas 1959. A mother headed out for a picnic. Remember, it's summer in the other hemisphere. And she was with her four children. And hours later, she and three of her children were found dead. The slow reveal that's Kate's style, and boy, she just knows how to dole out the story to us, begin to learn the secrets of that family, as well as about Nora and other members of the town. Nora and uh, what might have been hiding all this time with these people. While juggling these two timelines might be ambitious enough for somebody else, Kate layers in something else, a novel that she conceived, which is called As If They Were Asleep, in which a true crime writer has actually done his whole own writing and research into what happened that Christmas Eve in 1959. So readers are getting this 365 degree story of like what happened at that time, big perspectives. And at the same time, we've got this woman that's come home to visit her grandmother, who's plucked this true crime novel off the shelf in their library. And she's wondering, like, how does our family relate to this? How does this town relate to this? What is going on? Setup is wonderful. The wrap in the what last hundred pages is going to have it. You're just flying through them. It clocks in at 560 pages. And instead of being slowing down to enjoy the um, or racing through to try to get to the end, I found myself slowing down to enjoy the depth of the storytelling and to admire the craftsmanship of both the story and the character on so many, many levels. So there we've got Homecoming. Next up, we've got a book by an author who many of you at Book Reporter love as much as I do. It's William Ken Kruger, and we're going to be talking about The River We Remember. Now, I have read many, many, many of Ken's books. And I have to say that I think that this is the best of his three standalone titles. The setting in his books always becomes a character. We know that that's one of the true hallmarks of one of Kent's books. And this time is no exception. Here, we start with a river. Yes, a river. And the lifeless body of Jimmy Quinn, a man with a ton of money and countless enemies. And it's been found at the edge of the river. And it's been there long enough that the catfish have started to eat at it. Yeah, that's an image you want to hold on to. So it's 1958, and the men who came home from World War II are still grappling with their feelings about this as they move on with their lives, what this war meant to them. So this backstory is critical to the storytelling. Sheriff Brody Dern is one of those men, as is Connie Graff, the former sheriff. Kent stretches his characters in here and he gives them the chance to step outside typically acceptable behaviors. And as you read, you're going to see what I mean. In this book, we also are coming to terms with really something else that had happened during the war, because who is the first person who's the suspect? It's a Sioux Indian named Noah Bluestone. He's a likely target because he's different and is considered a savage by the community. Even brought home with him a Japanese woman. And she's his wife, and she came home with him from the war, which must show how much he really doesn't care about those for whom he served, because why would he be doing that? At the same time, we learn a lot about Quinn, the man who has been murdered, 
and a number of people who could want him dead. Mm -hmm. Seriously. The story revolves about a man without a voice who clearly has commanded fear and loathing to so, so many in the community. And as we meet them, the list of suspects who could have killed him goes longer and longer. Kent excels in writing about small towns. I love it when an author marries place, character, and action so deeply, which is what he does in this book. And on another note, I've heard from many men, including my husband, who's one of my first readers of every time I say, here, you've got to read this, who are absolutely loving this book. Next up, we have a book that probably would have been my fourth selection, which is Go as a River by Shelley Reed. It's a debut novel from Shelley, and it's set in a part of the world that's very, very, very special to me, the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. I spent a lot of time there. In fact, I met my husband there in the town of Crested Butte back in 1982. We both hailed from New Jersey, so it was kind of magical that we met there. So as a result, anything that takes place in that part of Colorado just def definitely warms my heart. So here we've got, it's 1948. Tori is this lonely teenage girl who's caring for her father, her uncle, and her brother following a car accident that killed her mother. She's, um, they also killed her favorite aunt and her cousin. And they live in the town of Iola, Colorado. School's already behind her, even though she would have been in high school because she has to stay home to take care of everybody now. With her father and her brother, she tends their peach farm when she is not cooking and running the household. And yes, peach farm. Uh, we can stop there for a second. I confess I never knew that peaches grew in Colorado until I read this book. So the book opens with Tori walking down the street after having a brief conversation with a young man who she's clearly attracted to, a young man named Wilson Moon, who asks her for directions to a boarding house. She kind of flirts with him and she goes home feeling a flirting connection to him, something spontaneous that she's not experienced before. Her brother, her father, and her uncle immediately dismiss him as indigenous and they don't want him to be involved in any of their lives. Anything that is bad will be blamed on this man. But as a teenager, as she is wont to do, Victoria, as she now calls herself, slips away to meet him high up in the mountains. And she goes there day after day where he teaches her things that he knows about living off the land and loving the land around them. Tragedy ensues and she's left as a very different per person in its wake. I'm not gonna share any more here because I don't wanna give away too much of the story. But at the same time, something's happening in Iola as well as two neighboring towns. They are slated to be submerged to allow for the creation of the Blue Mesa Reservoir. So Victoria has got to make a decision about what she will do with the land and the family peach farm. She begins to build a new life for herself, but she's still haunted by choices that she made years ago. What I'm sharing here is very, very top line about a very slim book that I could talk about for hours, but I want you to discover the story for yourself. Shelley is a fifth generation Coloradan, and that means her storytelling reflects her love of the land and the great outdoors as much as anything else. And yes, Colorado peaches are good, but I still say Georgia peaches are better. Next up, we have Pineapple Street. And this arrived just when I needed what I call an escape book. I'd heard of Jenny Jackson, where she edits a broad range of best-selling writers. Uh, you may know Emily St. John Mandel, J. Courtney Sullivan, Chris Bajelian, and Gabriel Zevin, to name a few. So she knows her way around publishing, but this time she delivers from the other side of the desk. 
This book is set in Brooklyn Heights in a Tony section where the streets are named Pineapple, Orange, and Cranberry. I never knew this part of Brooklyn existed. The Stockton family is old money and they're super connected. The matriarch and patriarch spend time rushing from one moneyed event to the next, including tennis, gala, and benefits. Oh yes, this is a super, super connected kind of family. The family's brownstone on Pineapple Street has been passed along to their oldest son, Cord, and his wife, Sasha. Uh, with all the antiques, everything is intact, but it's also don't touch anything. Everything is precious, which is just a little intimidating. So you're so lucky to live there. Aren't you so lucky? But uh, Sasha, everyone also thinks that you're a gold digger because you got the house and you got the guy. And she's not sure how she's feeling about herself right now. It's not that much of an enchanted world when she gets there on the other side of it. She can handle it though, right? And then Darley, uh, she's the oldest daughter. She gave up her finance job. She's now uh, running around town, parenting her children and getting them from one activity to the next. And she wonders if that all it is, where her husband whizzes around the world doing airspace deals and he's feeling super fulfilled. And then we've got the youngest daughter, Georgiana. She's single, she works at a nonprofit and ends up dating a man who's not right for her, but he makes her happy. She's spiraling, not wanting to stay attached to the golden life trappings. She's giving pushback on everything that her rest of her family has. So in case you're wondering where the senior Stocktons are when all this is happening, well, they moved to Orange Street, get it? Orange Street, just a few fruits away. They didn't go far at all, but then again, they do escape in winter to Palm Beach. This is what I call a smart beach read. Luckily, that found its way to me in March. There's humor, real life, and drama. That's all happening on Pineapple Street. Jean Kwok's The Leftover Woman is the story of two women and one child. In China, Jasmine Yang had a baby girl. Her husband told her the infant died. And why was that? Because there was the one-child policy in place in China at the time. And what did he want? He wanted a son. He didn't want a daughter. He didn't want a daughter that he would have to um, have as his only child. So he arranges to have this child adopted without her knowing it. So she finds out what happened and she wants to get to New York and she wants to track down her child. And to get there, she sells her wedding ring and anything else she can do to get herself safe passage into the city so that she will be able to track down her child. She owes a huge um, debt to these snakeheads uh, with whom she arranges the safe passage into the city. So her daughter is now living happily with a couple in New York. Rebecca Whitney is an executive at a publishing company, one that was run by her father. It's got a great history to it. And she really adored her father and she wants to make him proud of her, though he is gone. She wants to just say, like, I, whatever I did, I didn't do just because of nepotism. I did because I had talent as well. Her husband, Brandon, spends a lot of time in China, and his friendship with Jasmine's husband is the way that he was able to get this baby and bring this baby to America. The baby's now named Fiona, and she's nicknamed Fifi. For Becca, life is filled with tension on the job. These days, she, Jean is offering us an insider look of publishing, rife with competing editors, a big book headed to auction, and all the drama that happens when a professional intrigue is layered in the process. And Fifi, meanwhile, is very, very happy with her nanny, Lucy. Very happy. So Jasmine, meanwhile, is finding life in New York to be really, really rough. 
She gets a, finds that being undocumented is very difficult to get a job. And she gets a job in some really smarmy places. But all she wants to do is spend time with Fifi and be a part of her life. There's a twist that Jean pulls off beautifully, showing her skills as a writer and demonstrating that she has only gotten better with each book. The story is action-packed and it delivers on so many levels. And there's a lot to discuss here. Yellowface is the first book that I've read by R.F. Kwong. Her first name really is Rebecca. In the past, she's written award-winning fantasy titles, and I confess that I don't read a lot of fantasy, so I wasn't not familiar with her work. For those who love books about publishing, you have a current look at the world of publishing here. We get everything from the best-selling author, the writer who fears that if everything will, she'll never be able to write anything great again. And I think every author I know who I talk to, bestseller, et cetera, says, I'm sure I will never be able to write another book. June Hayward is an author whose debut sank like a stone. Oh my gosh, her book just did not do well. And she looks at Envy with another author, Athena Wu, who came into the business around the same time, but she had great success. And she is extremely jealous of this woman. Shortly after the book's opening, Athena dies in a very freak accident. It's like super crazy. And June is the only one there when it happens. Athena had been working about a book that was set during World War I about Chinese laborers and their fight on the front lines. As June leaves the room, she plucks the manuscript called The Last Front that had been typed up. Conveniently, there's no other copy anywhere. She plays around with it, putting her own spin on it and making it her own. As an author, who has been branded as unsuccessful with book one, June adopts a nom de plume, Juniper Song. So June, who is white, suddenly sounds like she is Asian. Hmm, see where I'm going here, folks. The book becomes a bestseller. And there are lots of award nominations and film talk, but there are also cries of cultural appropriation. She's attacked online with vicious comments. Her publisher calls her and says something like, do we have anything to worry about here? June hunkers down and tries to stay off Twitter, but each time she opens the page, she sees new attacks and they paralyze her further. Beyond the cultural issues in the book, there's lots of talk about the stealing of ideas here. I confess that I read Yellowface more as a story about publishing, where each book is brought by a publisher with high hopes. Nobody ever sits there and buys a book and says, I don't think this is gonna do well. Everybody buys going, I think this is the next best thing. And they stay there until a book is found to not be what people want, or these days, as a book that that person should not be writing. So there you've got yellow face with that very haunting eyes on the cover. Next up, we've got 3D Unregards, The Museum of Failures. Um, I absolutely love this book because it takes me once again to a place that I don't know much about. Remy Wadia is headed back to India for the first time since his father died. He and his mother have this very fractured relationship. She's tough. She's cold towards him. And he has no idea what he did to warrant this kind of treatment from her. He has returned with a mission in mind to adopt a baby. He is married and living in Ohio with his American wife, Kathy. And life there is full and brilliant. And he's got this loving relationship with her family. But they're both longing for a child. And the opportunity to adopt an Indian child has been shared by Remy's, with Remy's good friends in India. They know a woman who's pregnant 
and in the wrong relationship to keep a child. As Remy arrives, he goes to look in on his mother and he learns she's in the hospital and she's not speaking. And now he realizes he has to stay longer than he intended to, to get her settled. But then the story flips. We learn more about Remy's life and why the friction is there with his mother. Begin to understand that things were, here's our favorite line in writing, never as they seemed. The book unfolds beautifully and ends joyfully. And that phrase, the museum of failures, will come up again and again in this writing, bringing more meaning each time it is read. I also made 3D's novel, Honor, a Betson selection two years ago. Her book, The Space Between Us, is absolutely one of my favorite books. Would have been a Betson title if I was doing Betsons way back when, when it first came out. And I recently picked up The Secrets Between Us, which she wrote as a follow-up, which was published quietly, and I confess that I missed. Next up, we have once again two authors that I really enjoy, Ali Frank and Asha Humans with The Better Half. This is their third book together, and it's got both heart and soul. At 43, Nina Morgan Clark has arrived. She is the first Black headmaster of the very Tony Royal Hawkins School, which is mostly populated by students of wealthy white parents. She has a tolerable relationship with her ex-husband, and her daughter is on the East Coast in a private school. Before she embarks on this new role, she goes on vacation with her best and longtime friend Marisol, and their relationship between the two of them is part of what makes this book fun. On that book trip, she meets a man to whom she has an, an instant um, attraction, and she comes home with a challenge that will complicate her life. Okay, so at the same time, her job has its own difficulties, as from day one, she navigates the school board, entitled parents, and students who come with all kinds of needs. The drama is there, and so is the humor. Her father and Marisol ground her. They challenge her decisions, as well as they support her. At a time when race, and how to talk about it, is at the forefront of so much of the media, Allie and Asha work through the issues in a story where the beat is never heavy-handed, but it's laced with true emotion and thought. The two of them work together at a private school um, before they headed off to write together, where every day they'd say, oh, that belongs in a book. Oh, that's some material right there. Their previous books were both bets on selections, Tiny Imperfections, and Never Meant to Meet You, and I look forward to seeing what they do next. Next up, I've got Things I Wish I Told My Mother. It's a kind of book that's a real treat. It has heart, soul, armchair travel, and food. I mean, what could be better? Both Susan Patterson and Susan DeLello, the, the authors, enjoyed life with their mothers who lived well into their 90s. Susan Patterson mentioned one day that she had things that I wish I told my mother. And from there, the idea of the book was born. She and Susan decided to write a fictitious novel about a mother and daughter duo who seem like they're pretty opposites. Lori, who's just landed a new account at her advertising agency, is divorced and loves to try new things. Her mom uh, is the famous Dr. Liz. She's elegant. She's a perfectionist who's renowned and she receives much praise wherever she goes. So the two of them, what do they do? They take off and they go to Paris together. And they're going to go and spend time shopping and getting to know each other better. And along the way, lots of things happen that neither one of them saw coming. But at the same time, they get to know each other a lot better. And after going to Paris, where do they head? 
they head up to Norway. And where's Norway significant? Well, that's where Dr. Liz originally lived. That's where home was to her. And it's someplace that she's really wanted to show her daughter and give her more of an understanding about who she is, what she is, and who the people were that she knew back then. It's one of those books that's got a lot of travel. It's got a lot of food. Yes, you'll feel like you're in Paris and you'll definitely be running to the kitchen to try to get something to eat as you're reading the book. I promise you. Next, we've got The Berry Pickers. And this is one of the last books of the year that I read. There are four that I read at the very end of the year. Um, I first of all love this beautiful cover. This is a book that we layered in very, very at the end of one of our last Bookachino live um, presentations. And when we did that, we asked people, what are the books you most want to read? This was the one that came up as their first choice, which was really terrific. It's from a small publisher. I mean, I love seeing small publishers get this kind of recognition. Book has been up for awards. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful story on top of everything else. It opens in July, 1962. A Minkwok family from Nova Scotia arrives in Maine to pick blueberries for the summer. Yes, a lot of native, a lot of the um, indigenous people would come down to Maine and do picking at this time of the year. Weeks later, four-year-old Ruthie, the family's youngest child, is missing. She is last seen sitting on a rock with her um, by her brother Joe at the edge of a berry field. Joe will come to be completely distraught that he is the last person that saw her, and why did he not do something to take her away from whatever was going to be the thing that took her away from the whole family. This disappearance is going to haunt him and the rest of the family. There's times where there'll be all kinds of um, issues for the family because they're Indian. And because we can see what happens when they came into this country just to do the picking at these certain times of years to come in and pick the blueberries. So same time, we've got a story in Maine where a young girl named Norma grows up the only child of an affluent family. Her father is emotionally distant. Her mother is very overprotective, frustratingly so. Norma's often troubled about these, these uh, dreams that seem more like memories than imagination. Yes, we probably all are guessing now exactly who Norma really is. And as she grows older, she comes to realize there's something that her parents are not telling her. They're actually telling her a lot of times that one of her uncles was Italian, and that's the reason that she tans more than they do during the summer. There are all kinds of different things. And unwilling to abandon her intuition, she spends decades trying to uncover this family's secret. And last in our category of fiction, we've got Mary Kay Andrews, who is back with us again with Bright Lights, Big Christmas. Oh, we just love this book, people. It's my favorite of her holiday titles. I do confess that reading this book back in September had me a little tad nervous about I had not gotten everything done for the holiday. I mean, seriously, when you read a book like this in September, it reminds me of my days back at the magazine where we've been doing Christmas in August. And by the time Christmas came around, it was, who ah, that holiday, we already did that. Well, here's what we've got is that... Um, it's the kind of Christmas story set in New York that you just want to read. Carrie Tolliver is coming to the city for the first time to sit and sell the family Christmas trees. Yes, the family has a Christmas tree farm in North Carolina, and every winter they come up and sell their Christmas trees on the corner at the same corner every single year. And they bring up 
this little travel trailer, like this little travel trailer, which is where they live. They hook up to the electricity at one of the restaurants. People in the neighborhood allow them to use their bathrooms and take showers. And they just spend a lot of time like in that neighborhood getting to know all the people. Some of the same people come and buy trees from them other that every year. And while New York is such a big place, we realize that there are also small neighborhoods there as well. So typically this job is done by her father and her brother Murph. And her dad's had a heart attack. He can't come up this year. So she's charged with you, take the travel trailer, and you go up there and work with him to sell the trees. Well, Murph knows every shopkeeper. He knows the neighbors. He knows everything. And she's kind of stuck living with him. And it's not exactly what she feels like doing. He's curmudgeonly and he's like messy and all these kinds of things that are just going to make her crazy. Her other companion is Murph's adorable dog, Queenie. It's very, very lovable. And while New York is all, you know, new to, to Carrie, she's got this dog that sits next to her and the people who come up to her and they want to be by the trees because this is who they always come to shop with. And it's fun to see New York through her eyes. She also has a very artistic and creative spirit around her, which is very much like Mary Kay Andrews. And so she quickly augments their tree business by making custom decorated wreaths and other style ideas that drive her brother crazy. He just wants to sell the trees and go home, like enough already with all these extras. And uh, he wants to get moved out of there pretty fast. Well, of course, there's also a love interest because what would happen if it was a book that a love interest for the young girl. Not happening here. It's Patrick. He's a single dad and he's raising his son, Austin. And he, Austin, of course, is super taken with her, super taken with the dog. He wants to help out selling the trees, anything they can do to help make, you know, her stay and Christmas be brighter. There's also a mystery laced in as there's an elderly neighbor that hasn't been seen in days and what's going on with him. So while the city is big, the neighborhood is full of community and lots of love, and the story wraps up perfectly, just like a perfect bow on things for the holidays. So those are my first group of books. I'm going to take a break here to go get more books, and we'll get on to, um, we're going to go to historical fiction next, and then we move on to mysteries, thrillers, and memoirs. So just one second, folks. In Loyalty, Lisa Scottolini takes us to Sicily in the 1800s, where the Mafia was born. The Mafia was originally organized to pr offer protection from those who were trying to hijack lemon crops on their way to market. Bet you didn't know that. But this quickly became more criminal and radical as the price to protect the crops spilled into other businesses. The idea of the family was born. And Lisa brings us inside Sicily at this time sharing a story through the eyes of four characters. One will be the head of the family. Another will be cast from her village. A shepherd who is a Jew will be the third and he will lose his flock. And a lawyer who will look for justice for a boy who was kidnapped. And I have to say that once you start reading, you will wonder how these very disparate characters are all going to come together. Lisa will not only get you there, but along the way, she will deliver the smells, the tastes, and the scenery of Sicily. And when these very different storylines converge, you will see how brilliantly this book was plotted and developed. Lisa traveled to Sicily for her research, and there the characters came to her as she was there. 
she did not have these people all plotted on in advance. Her pre-travel research gave her the basics about the setting, but being there infused her with ideas. Things like when she went to smell the lemons and the lemon groves, and as she toured all the ruins and saw the different parts of Italy and saw around Sicily how you would be able to get around, how you would get from one point to the next. She conveys the vastness of the landscape and what's unique to Sicily. This is her second work of historical fiction. The first was Eternal, and I really look forward to seeing what she does next. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. It's not a slim book, but it's a book that when you really like let her tell the story for you and let it bring it to you, you're going to see how all these disparate stories will tell the story of what happened in Sicily during that time and the birth of the mafia. Next up, we've got The House of Lincoln by Nancy Horan. This is Nancy's first book since 2014. Many of you, yes, you're going to remember her for the book Loving Frank. So having grown up in Springfield, Illinois, Nancy was quite familiar with Abraham Lincoln's influence on the country, especially in that part of the state. The more she read and the more she explored, the more she wanted to bring life to life, not just the man, but also the time in which he lived, a time that was fraught with racial divide. She chooses to tell the story through a woman named Anna Ferreira, whose family arrived in Springfield in 1849 fleeing religious persecution that they were under in Madeira, Portugal. Now, that alone for me was a revelation. I had no idea that people from, from uh, were immigrating to this part of the country from Portugal. So there's something that you learn just by opening the page of a book. Anna gets a job in the Lincoln household, first as a Saturday girl, where she does housework and looks after the children. We see a very different side of Mary Lincoln here. She's trying to run a home while her husband is trying to uh, constantly on the move, often tucking notes into his stovepipe hat. She, we, Anna also finds friendship with Cal, a young black woman, and they become acutely aware of racial tensions that are present in the free state of Illinois. These tensions are ramping up with the Fugitive Slave Act as fines and jail time at the ready for anyone who is found helping to move slaves. The Underground Railroad is beating a path through Springfield. Anna washes this room far and sees its ramifications on those who are fighting hard to bring the path to freedom. The story does not end with Lincoln's death. She brings, brings us into the early 1900s and the Springfield race riot of 1908. She notes that racial strife and prejudice does not end with the making of laws, and we're reminded again what, what will come when we see each other as equals. It's a good book, book for discussion, especially for those groups who have already looked at other books about Lincoln. Rachel Beanland's The House is on Fire came was a well-written, immersive book of historical fiction. A couple of years ago, when she moved to Richmond, um, the moving van was delayed and the realtor was driving her around. And he cited that as the location of the um, theater fire that killed a number of people in 1811. Well, this little nugget of history stayed with her. And when the pandemic limited her travel, she moved to do deep research on the fire, its origins and its aftermath. The fire occurs the night after Christmas in Richmond, which is very busy with plantation owners that are in town on holiday before the planting and harvest season that consumes most of the year. Going to the theater is a very big social activity in town. 
And with that, the Charleston-based Placid and Green Company is performing and the place is packed. Now, the elite and wealthy are sitting uh, way up in the high boxes and on the sides. And there's a gallery where colored people are gathered to watch the performance. The stairwells from the upper levels are clogged with patrons. And all of a sudden, there begins a fire in the building. The smoke rises quickly, and it inhibits chances of survival, especially to those well-to-do who are up on top. Well, who, how do some of these people get out? Who steps up? Who sits there and helps? You're going to be surprised when you see what happens. And down on the lower level, well, you've got a number of people who were slaves that were down there. What does this mean? Was a chance for them to believe that for people to believe they were um, died in the fire and for them to be able to escape? We're not really sure what's happening here. The book is told in four voices. The newly widowed Sally Henry Campbell, Cecily Patterson, a slave, Gilbert Hunt, a blacksmith who was looking to buy freedom for himself and his wife, and Jack, a teenage stagehand. Each of them makes decisions that day that will haunt his or her life. And what is interesting is that this fire garnered national attention way back in the 1800s when news did not spread really, really rapidly. Longtime readers know I'm a huge fan of Mary Marie Benedict's writing. The Mitford Affair focuses on three Mitford sisters. One is the writer, Nancy, and the other two, Diana and Unity, become known for their political leanings. The book opens in 1932. Diana, who is billed as one of the most beautiful of the three, is hosting a party at the home that she shares with her husband, Brian, a Guinness heir. Being celebrated is her younger sister, Unity. The scene is stunning. All of London is on hand. It's a big story-filled uh, event. But at this party, Diana's eyes are not on her husband, but rather on Sir Walter, so Os, I'm sorry, but rather on Sir Oswald Mosley, founder of the British Union of Fascists. In the coming months, she leaves Brian for Mosley, completely taking up the mantle of the, his agenda. And soon Unity has embraced the concept of fascism and heightens her involvement to move to Germany. There she takes an unhealthy interest in Hitler and schemes to insert herself in his inner circle. She's successful, her look is Aryan, and her family's stature in the UK is not not lost on Hitler at all. She's a pawn to him, but she sees herself as the woman he needs to further his cause while he's already known to have one mistress. Totally swept up in the ideas of fascism, Diana and Unity court Hitler and other top leaders and think how the message of the improved Germany can be spread. Nancy watches the scene, surprised at her sisters, and at the same time working on her writing with a lot more jaded eyes. This novel is told in the voices of the sisters. These women are fervent in their own beliefs when it comes to political missions and the men that they have in their lives. The writing's brisk, and the storytelling is completely absorbing. For Dedeka Johnson, The House of Eve, the inspiration for this book was personal for her. Her grandmother was just 14 when she got pregnant with her mother. Until she was in the third grade, her mother never knew that the woman she thought of as her sister was actually her mother. It got Sadiqa to thinking about what that time would have been like for a woman. She looks at the story through the eyes of two women, Eleanor Quarles is attending Howard University. And here for the first time, she learns that black people separate themselves by color. 
the level of prejudice about her being too dark that she had not grown known before in the small town of Ohio where she grew up, and it enlightens her in ways that she never expected. She falls in love with a man who's much lighter skinned, and his family, especially, especially his mother, have concerns about her having designs on him. They're more acceptable females for him, including a lighter skinned woman who he was all but promised to from the time he was a child. The other character is Ruby Parasol, who is very bright and on the track to go to college if she can get a scholarship. Every day she works towards that goal. She grew up living with her grandmother. Her mother had her as a teenager and was never really emotionally equipped to be there for her. She falls in love with a Jewish boy, thus tackling lots of issues that this pairing brings. Both girls become pregnant with very different circumstances and outcomes. In these days of pre-Roe versus Wade, readers get a look about what pregnancy meant during a time when options were limited and how prejudice was such a big part of how these black women would be seen against the same challenges presented by white women. There is a thread of Sadiqa's storytelling that reminds us of how much has changed by the 50s and how much has stayed the same. Those who read her uh, prior work, A Yellow Wife, will see a little thread that goes through here, the little homage and nod to that book. When I first heard that Fiona Davis had written a book set at Radio City Music Hall, I decided to hold off on reading it until November when the Christmas Spectacular kicked off there, pun intended. I'm glad I did. The Spectacular opens in 1956 when 19-year-old Marion Brooks seizes an opportunity and auditions for the Rockettes, and she's selected. Her father is furious. Absolutely, he does not want her going into show business. He had plans for her. She was going to marry her boyfriend, Nathaniel, and she's going to continue to live in Bronxville. Instead, she moves into a rooming house with the other Rockettes and theater folks and embarks on a grueling yet invigorating schedule uh, to perfect the tightly choreographed routines. Fiona takes us backstage at Radio City as she gives with other of the New York buildings that she's written about in her other books and gives us a skinny on what goes on to make this onstage magic. However, she layers in, layers in a new thing in her historical fiction, a thriller. As a mysterious bomber, nicknamed the Big Apple Bomber, has been terrorizing the city for 16 years, setting off bombs at, new, at landmark New York City locations. One goes off at Radio City. And a young doctor named Peter Griggs is brought in on the case. He's been working on something very new called criminal profiling. From the details he's been told, he makes a picture of what the bomber's behavior is. His research is mocked by police, but as the bomber continues to confound them, they really sit there and look at, like, what is he talking about? What, um, and what does he have right? And this is the beginning of criminal profiling in this country. It's 1992 at the beginning of this book, before we flash back to the earlier time when she first becomes a Rockette, and we learn what happened to the characters during that time. I think this is Fiona's best book. Not only did she undertake a big, big story, like the Radio City Music Hall and its iconic shows, and actually she talks about how different it was back then because the stage shows happened throughout the year, and there was always a movie that surrounded them. So you go in and watch the stage show and then watch a movie and how it's changed today where the state that show only happens really in I get from Thanksgiving to a little bit after New Year's. That's it. So if you're a rockette, that's the only time you're, you're dancing on stage. Um, but she also crafted a very smart thriller. And I look forward to seeing what she does next as well. Absolution by Alice McDermott was one of the last books that I read this year as one of my bets on's. 
American women, American wives especially, have been very minor characters when we sit and talk a lot about the Vietnam War. But in absolution, we've got the wives and a very, very beautiful way of storytelling in this book. We've got Trisha. She's the shy newlywed. She's married to this attorney who's on loan to Navy intelligence. And she's now living in Vietnam with him. And she's anxious to be a good wife and have a baby and just have this very, very settled life. Well, things are not going exactly the way she would like them to be happening at this point. But along the way, she also has met this woman named Charlene, who's a practice corporate spouse. Oh, she knows how to throw a party. She knows how to lobby people to help her to do things. She knows how to just get everything going around. So in some ways, she's beauty. In some ways, she's a bully. And she's telling everybody else what to do. But at a time in Saigon in 1963, the two women are kind of forming this alliance together. Because at the same time, they're supposed to be helpmeets to their ambitious husbands. They're supposed to be helping their husbands with their careers, helping them further their careers along. And then they're also trying to do good on their own for the people of Vietnam. And there are a number of different ways that they jump off to try to do this along the way. So the book is told in this story fashion of Trisha writing to uh, Charlene's daughter to tell her about what she saw those times like and what she felt was going on and to explain her mother and explain kind of asking for absolution of what we actually went through later on in Vietnam. This is the beginning of the escalation of what's happening. This is only 1963. America actually doesn't go into the war until 1965, but we definitely have people on the ground at this point, even though we're not actually in the war. So 60 years later, Charlene's daughter, spurred by an um, aging um, an encounter with an aging Vietnam vet, she reached out to, Tr uh, to Trisha. She wants to know what's going on. And together, there's, her part is going to be much shorter at the end. They're going to look back at their time in, um, on Saigon, taking a look at that pivotal year, Charlene and who she was and what she was, where her daughter went from there, where um, Trisha went from there. And they're going to look at these women on their lives on the periphery of politics, history, war, their husbands, what their husbands' convictions were. And it's been shaped by some unintended um, consequences that followed what happened in Southeast Asia. They're going to leave Vietnam before America actually um, enters the war, but they're definitely haunted by their memories of there. It's absolutely a beautifully written story. I love the voice. That's what I enjoyed the most about this book. The voice of her telling of her about her mother and the other younger woman sharing what's happened to her family since then. And though we all sit down and we write like neat ways our lives are going to unfold. Well, not everything happens exactly the way we think it's going to. Now let's do some mysteries. The Maid was such a terrific debut, and I was wondering if Nita Prose could match it or top it with the mystery guest. And I'm very pleased to say that I think she topped it. Once again, we have Molly the Maid, who we fell in love with in The Maid, and in this very first book. And now she's the head maid at the Grand Hotel, the Regency Grand Hotel. When the book opens, the mystery author, J.D. Grimthorpe, hold on a second, I'm going to do this one over because I'm going to try and get the cover someplace where it doesn't glare, which I think is here, here, here. Why do some glare and some not? Can't figure this out. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. 
Oh, some of them, I guess, are shinier. Hmm. Let's do this. Okay. All right. Oh, you're going to shoot me. Okay, here we go. I'm not going to worry about it. Maybe hold it on this side. Try this. No, that's too hard to do. All right, we're going to go forth with glare. Okay. Next up, we have some mysteries. Starting with the mystery guest by Nita Prose. The Maid was such a terrific debut, and I sort of wondered, oh gosh, could Nita do it again? And I'm happy to say that she does with the mystery guest. Once again, we've got Molly the Maid, who we knew and fell in love with the, in the first book, and now she is the head maid, something to aspire to, at the Regency Grand Hotel. The book opens, we've got a mystery guest, uh-huh, yeah, no pun intended, J.D. Grimthorpe. He's come to the hotel to make a big announcement. But at the start of the program, he takes a, a drink of tea, he collapses, and he dies. There's a mystery unfolding here. The hotel's pristine, and you know that word pristine from the maid, reputation is at stake. Molly finds her, herself in a position to get deep into the investigation, as years ago, her gran worked at Grimthorpe's mansion. Yes, Molly spent a lot of time there because Molly didn't do so well in school where you had to follow the rules. And instead, she would go to, with the, to the mansion every day with Gran, where she would polish the silver. And also then she'd get to spend time in his library. She knows a lot about him, details that many may not know. She was just a tad too much for everybody else, but she would find herself on this job, loving it, but also seeing things through her own eyes, things that other people might have missed. Layering in an author, an author event, and a lively group of, group of readers. Yes, I'll leave you to find out about the lambs in here. It's a totally fun group of people. I enjoyed it even more than The Maid with all its twists and turns, which is saying something since a sophomore effort mm, sometimes usually doesn't live up to it, the um, earlier work. But this time, it certainly did. Next book up is Evergreen by Naomi Hirahara. And it is a Japantown mystery. Uh, it's a follow-up to the book called Clark and Division, though you can read each book on its own and totally understand what is happening. Um, I had learned so much from the character Aka Ito when she had moved to Chicago with her parents as part of the resettlement of the Japanese people during World War II. I confess that until I read Clark and Division, I had no idea that some people were sent from California to live in um, the Chicago area. Well, in Evergreen, the family's moving back to Los Angeles, and they find that a lot of the places they knew have changed a lot in their absence. There's an epitaph at the start of the novel that I recommend you read to get an idea of the enormity of what happened to the people. While I often think of these books as historical fiction, they slide easily into the character of class of mystery, where each one has a murder that needs to be solved, and Naomi is very, very good at laying out all the clues for a mystery. In Evergreen, Aki works as a nurse's aide. One day, she sees an elderly man who she knows who has been badly beaten. What has happened to him? She knows his son, who's a friend of her husband's. Did he do this to his father? She works to sleuth out these clues, often heading to a part of the town where life is lived on the darker side. She's also a newlywed who has greeted a husband who's just back from the war, and he's harboring his own nightmares of his time away. Naomi's a really deaf storyteller who quickly moves readers through the story, sharing history, family drama, and everyday life. Each novel works on its own in combination. They bring a really, truly rich history of the times. Veil of Doubt 
is Sharon Vert's second novel of historical and its historical mystery set in 1872. In it, Maud, the three-year-old daughter of Emily Lloyd, has died after a short illness when she was really rebounding and seeming to feel better. Well, this would be tragic enough if the other three children in the family and the woman's husband had not died previously under mysterious circumstances. Emily is accused of poisoning Maud and is quickly charged with murder. Powell Harrison and his brother Matthew come into the case, taking on something that really appears to be unwinnable. Powell has experienced a personal loss re recently, and he watches Emily projecting some of how he feels onto her, but he's convinced that something's not ringing right about the story. She does not seem capable of murder, yet a child is dead, and so are some other family members. It's interesting that the trial doesn't start until about halfway through the book, and earlier we are with the defense team as they're trying to prove that Emily is not guilty by reason of insanity. There's, or insanity is probably what's happening here. The case draws huge attention from the town and the testimony from doctors and other experts is dissected by the jury. And we learn a lot about Emily's personal history, which had a huge impact on her. Sharon loves history, she truly does. And she found Emily's story from there and uh, research sent her right down a rabbit hole. She drew upon what she learned about Emily and Powell to construct a narrative that's interesting and engrossing. She awfully, also deftly depicts 19th century Virginia, where the Civil War shattered so many lives and men's harboring deep memories of the war. So there's Veil of Doubt. Next up. We have Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. And I was trying to figure out whether I'd make this a family story, a mystery, or a thriller. Wasn't quite sure which way to go. So I'm going to place it here in the mystery bank, which somehow makes me feel like I'm between my two other categories. In it, um, this is a beautiful, poignant family story with a mystery layered inside it. 14-year-old Eugene has Engelman syndrome. When he smiles and laughs, he cannot verbalize so his loved ones have been dealing with these challenges. He smiles, he laughs, he jumps around, he does all kinds of activities when he feels like he's very much under pressure, and but he cannot verbalize the way he's feeling. His father, Adam, has assumed the role of house husband and caretaker of him for years. And as the book opens, Eugene and Adam have been out hiking in a suburban park and they're late coming home. And when Eugene appears at the door, He's very disconcerted and he has blood caked under his fingernails and on his clothing. He's agitated and he takes to his room to do the jumping jacks and the sounds that he makes when he's trying to soothe himself in rough circumstances. His sister, who's 20, immediately washes his clothes, fearing the worst and that he will be found to be an accomplice. She, her mother, and her twin brother are worried about his neurodivergent behavior will have him judged quick, uh, very harshly by the legal system. So they pull together to protect him. It beautifully illustrates the love and compassion this family demonstrates to ensure that Eugene is safe, which they have done for years, but never with this urgency. And trying to figure out what happened that day, there are a few twists. They're going to learn some things of how Eugene will be able to communicate with them. And as they think about Adam, they're going to reveal bits about his theories on the relativity of happiness. Everyone Here is Lying by Sherry LaPena. Longtime readers will know that I call Sherry LaPena the queen of the one-sit read. Why? 
because once I start writing, reading one of her books, I do not stop. It's the one sit read. The action peaks at the end of the chapter and I say, oh, just one more. I oh, just want more. And it keeps you going just like that. Everyone here in Lying, it lives up to its title. His characters are filled with secrets. And yep, everybody's lying. Right at the opener, we realized that William Wooler, who is a doctor, is having an affair. Well, he was until his paramour broke up with him. And he heads home kind of stunned to be alone with his thoughts when his nine-year-old daughter, Avery, walks in the door. She's been kicked out of choir practice for misbehaving again. Well, he is not really, really happy about this. And it coupled with this, she's not supposed to have walked home on her own. And she's now interrupting his alone time. And he causes him to strike out at her. He quickly apologizes, but she runs away. Suddenly, Avery is missing. There are many suspects who could have taken her. And the whole neighborhood is now under a microscope. We learn what people think about Avery, her family, each other, and all their secrets as well. Fingers get pointed. Ideas are shared. The police, well, let's just say they've got plenty of suspects. And by the end, a lot has happened, and more than one life has been changed, and the last pages are brilliant. Do not read them ahead. It's no secret to book reporter readers that Linwood Barclay is one of my favorite authors. Definitely one of the thriller people I will pick up quickly. I love the way he introduces us to characters. And as we come to know them, we immediately start to think, hmm, how are we going to put all of these people together? Well, Jack Gibbons had a crazy thing happen to him when he was young. His dad went into witness protection. Yep. After years of a hitman for the bad men, he went in and ratted them out. And now, well, he's got to take off. And he, his son is very, very unhappy. He's, as he tells Jack, I killed people. And I can't just say, I'm sorry about that. Jack's mom ends not to leave. She decides she's not going to leave. And Jack is ripped away from his dad. And he's a really sad goodbye that's going to plague him for years. So when he's asked to um, apply for a top secret position, one who's going to be creating the bios of those who need to be hidden by the U.S. Marshals. He jumps at the chance. Maybe these people can get him to his dad. From there, whoosh, we get to the part where we think we know what was going on, but then Linwood spins you this way and that way, as he is so good at doing. And you think about those bumper cars we rode in as kids. Boom, you go this way. Boom, you go that way. And finally, boom, I really didn't see that part coming. Linwood also explains enough that you think a character can get out of a situation that you're in, but just as you're convinced they are safe, their lives go off the rails. Knowing Linwood's love for his dad, who died way too young, I see a lot of heart and soul in The Lie Maker. They're homages to the meaning of dads and love for them in this book. Okay, I want to see how many of you remember reading Defending Jacob back in 2012 and being blown away by its ending. Well, this time, all these years later, yep, 12 years later, William Landy is publishing in a very different landscape. Why well, would classify Defending Jacob as a legal thriller? I see all that is mine I carry with me as a crime novel. We're living in a time where true crime is all over the media landscape. And as I was reading this one, the Murdoch trial was going on, and I kept thinking on how much can really be hidden today. So here we've got, it's November 1975, and Jane Larkin disappears. Her daughter Miranda comes home from school one day. Jane's handbag is still there. And there's no indication of a struggle or any reason that she is gone. 
And in the ensuing days, the lack of evidence keeps this uh, from being uh, solved. Of course, her husband, Dan, well, of course, he's the suspect. It's always the husband, right? But nothing turns up as evidence. It seems that she just vanished. Miranda and her brothers, Alex and Jeff, pick up the pieces of their lives and move, as, uh, move forward as best they can. Flash forward two decades, Jane's body's found. The investigator was on the case from the start comes back into the picture. For him, this is the case that kept him up at night. There's no criminal trial, but there's an option to sue Dan for wrongful death. The siblings are split on this issue, which leads to more tension. The book is split into four parts, and I want you to pay careful attention to each of them as the structure and the use of punctuation changes as the four parts um, unfold. It worked for me, and I hope it does for you. A couple of years ago, I read Audrey O'Drain's debut novel, The Push, and I joke that I never will look at little pink mittens the same way again. When I read The Whispers, once again, she has nailed a young mother's domestic thriller. It's set in this very upscale neighborhood where the oversized big houses are next to the um, homes that are the original homes. They're smaller sized all on the same block. Yep, we've got teardowns going on. So we've got original neighborhood with behemoth mansions. Harlow Street is the kind of place where you know your neighbors, you socialize with them, and then you talk about them. The book opens at the end of a summer party where the barbecue's in full swing. It's one of those flawless parties. The woman who's throwing it, the hostess has thrown of every detail and it's swinging on through the night. The hostess excuses herself at one point and she heads up to see what her older son is doing since he's not outside with the others. She finds him sitting next to the cookies that were made with each child's name on them, the ones that she carefully prepared, and many of them are eaten. And she lets loose with a profanity-laced string of words to him before she realizes that the window of his room is wide open. Yep, everybody heard her. And yes, mortified, she makes her way back to the party acting like absolutely nothing happened. Fast forward a couple of months and the same boy is lying in a hospital bed. He's fallen out of that same window, a window without a screen on it. He's in a coma, and we're not sure if he'll ever be the same. His mother sits by him, and she's silent and vigilant. So what happened with that boy, and what happened with that window? Next up, we have Megan Miranda, and she's once again nailing a twisty thriller with The Only Survivors. The premise drew me in quickly, seven hours in the past, seven days in the present, seven survivors remaining, who would you save? Picture this. 10 years ago, a group of students survived a horrific accident. Bonding over this, they decided to meet each year at a house on the Outer Banks to reminisce and spend time with each other. Before their latest get together, one of the group members has died. And as they gather for the 10th time, another goes missing. Megan alternates between writing in the present day and slipping into each character's own thoughts, giving readers time to get to know them better. But at the same time, we're sort of wondering uh, what happened all those years ago. By seeing this, we know what each of the characters was doing on that fateful day and what's been hidden. There are things that people would rather not reflect upon, namely those who they left behind in the crash. The suspense level is ratcheted up throughout the novel, and you'll see why your thoughts on each character shift as you come to learn more. After I finished it, I wanted to read again to delve into how smartly it's constructed. And many times with the thriller, that's what I'm looking at, 
is not just the story, but how they put the whole story together. Next up, we've got T.J. Newman. Ah, many of you people know her from the novel Falling a couple of years ago. And this cover looks very much the same as Falling. Here it's called Drowning. She knows her stuff about airplanes and flying, as you know, because she was a flight attendant for a number of years. I've actually started writing Falling sitting in the jump seat of the overnight flights where she would sit and say the passenger were all sleeping. And what would happen if this plane, well, let's not think about that. Her new novel, Drowning, has a very similar cover, and I haven't seen that done, but at this time, the plane is not in danger of crashing. It crashes very early in the book. Forget the drinks and the snacks, people. That None of that is happening. The flight crew here is in full crisis mode as the plane heads to San Francisco from Hawaii, and it goes down a mere six minutes into the trip, okay? Suddenly, the passengers have a view of the Pacific Ocean from below. The plane has been ditched. On board is Will Kent, who's traveling with his 11-year-old daughter, Shannon. He's soon to be divorced from Shannon's mom, Chris, who feels is really overprotective of him to be accompanying her to her summer camp in San Francisco. I mean, clearly she could have gotten there by herself. And it's an idea she quickly rethinks as she knows that now Will can help Shannon hopefully be able to guide her to safety. But the plane has taken the lives of a lot of the passengers and the captain. Some people head from the aircraft, while others decide to wait for a rescue. But first, plans for rescue are thwarted, and all hope is placed on the shoulders of Chris. Can she save her husband and her daughter, her almost ex-husband and her daughter? And instead, she um, is a diver in an underwater rescue. She's been trained in both of those things. The plane is teetering on an undersea cliff, and the time is running out, and so is the air. The hours tick by and we do tick them down. TJ keeps ratcheting up the drama and the pace. Now, I don't think anybody should read this on an airplane over the holidays, especially flying over water, but I do suggest you read it. Now, I'm going to preface my conversation about the next book by saying Megan Abbott is a very sunny person. I want to share this because she writes books about people who have such dark personalities in them. I actually interviewed her a couple of months ago at the Morristown Festival of Books, and she says that she really writes these scary books because she's afraid of just about everything, right? So beware the woman. She's JC and her husband, Jed, on a trip to his father's house in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which sounds quite idyllic. Jed is not like the other men she's dated. He's kind and caring. He's a neon artist. And her description of the work had me longing to, ex uh, to explore that more because she makes being a neon artist sound absolutely interesting. Jed's father's a retired doctor, and he's clearly not enamored with the son and his art. At first, JC has been told that Jed's mother passed away when Jed was young, but she learns another story as the trip goes on. And oh, this cast of characters, let's add Mrs. Brandt, the housekeeper, who lives on the property year-round. For JC, this trip is a lot because she's pregnant and she feels very vulnerable. The setting is at first glance lovely, but then remote lo location feels anything but safe as JC begins to feel trapped and uncomfortable. She wants to leave, but it's told it's not wise to go. And she starts to question who her husband really is. And she feels different when he's with his father. And what's going on with Dr. Ash, who's solicitous and overly protective? Megan loves writing strong women, and she's created one in JC who runs a brilliant inner monologue throughout the book. But in the end, you may still have questions about her future, but you feel like she's just headed the right way. 
Next up, we have the Connollys of County Down. It's Tracy's second novel. Her first one I really enjoyed, which was called We Are the Brennans. It came out about two years ago. And she's big on writing um, a readers a family saga. When the book opens, Chara is getting out of jail after, standing, stand, after serving, I'm sorry, an 18-month sentence on drug charges. The conviction means that she cannot return to her job as a school teacher, which is something she really loved to do. She, in fact, her entire time she was in prison, she was drawing pictures for the other inmates, things they could send home to their children. And she leaves jail with the oddest person driving her home, the police officer who arrested her. Yep, the cop who arrested her is the guy driving her home. He's also wondered what she was really doing the night she was arrested. And he thinks she knows more than she's saying. Once home, she's living with her sister, Geraldine, and her brother, Eddie, and Eddie's son, Connor. Geraldine has ruled the roost for years. Their mom was ill and she kept the family together. And she slid into the matriarchal role and she never left it. But they're all adults now. And Geraldine's power over them is not quite what it used to be. Eddie had an accident years ago and he suffers from headaches. Now, Connor, his young son, is thrilled to have Tara home. And she can spend time with him because his dad and his aunt usually don't have time for him. So Geraldine starts to fall apart and everything's okay until it's not. And the behavior twists in a worried way that I did not see coming. And now about that police officer, he's like a dog with a bone when it comes to figuring out what actually went on with Tara. He's not buying her story. And well, you have to read to find out what Tara really knows and what really happened there. Sarah Pekinen's Gone Tonight is written in two voices. Ruth Sterling is 41 and is a fierce protector of her 24-year-old daughter, Catherine. Ruth left home when she was pregnant at 17, just been the two of them for years. And when the book opens, Catherine is looking forward to relocating to Baltimore for a new job. Ruth does not want her to make this move. It's going to bring her too close to something that Ruth's passed that she really wants to keep left behind. Readers are given more and more of a look into the past and why Ruth is so protective as the book goes on. And Ruth's been forgetting things, small things, but it's got Catherine worried about leaving her mother. Should she be leaving her mother behind? Should she be changing her plans? But what's really going on with Ruth? Catherine starts to dig into her past and with a few scraps of information she has, she gets closer and closer to the truth, dangerously so. At the same time, Catherine is a star at work and clearly bonds with the people that she's living working with at this um, older people's facility. Her job will work with cover as she needs as the action ramps up. Story builds to a solid conclusion, but in the aftermath, it's gonna give you pause in this aha moment. It's gonna be a lot of thought on the women and what you just read. And on a lighter note, I wanna know if when you finish reading the book, you also want to look up the recipe for lasagna pizza, which is what I did. I have been a fan of Liz, Liz Nuchin's books since her debut, Unraveling Oliver. So when Strange Sally Diamond got on my radar, I had a feeling that I would be in for a terrific psychological thriller. When this opens, Sally's father has passed away and she has done with him exactly what he said she should do when he died. She should put him out in the bin. She should just burn him. And since the garbage is typically burned, she does this, she goes out, she burns, starts to burn the body to bury him. And quickly people see that, wait a second, 
Sally's got some challenges. If you tell her something a little bit too directly, that may be what she does. And yeah, she's on the uh, neurodiverse spectrum and she doesn't always get the implied joke of just take my body out and burn it with the trash. And immediately the whole town is now paying attention to Sally. Like, what is she doing now? Learn about Sally a lot. Oh, we learn about the man that she called her father was actually her adopted father. He's a doctor that worked along with his wife when she was taken from a brutally tough situation. Birth mother been kidnapped at a young age, and by the time she was rescued, they've been traumatized for years. She's born in anything but a loving relationship. And about now you're going, oh my gosh, Carol, why do you think we're betting that we're going to love this book? Because in Liz's hands, the story builds and builds, gets more complex with every chapter as we look into Sally and her past. And as you're sitting there and you're reading, you're going to be saying, wait a second, what is really going on here? What really happened to this poor girl all those years ago? Yeah, there's a lot to look at it with Cat Sally Diamond, and you're going to discover things along the way with her. It's hard to believe that Liz did not plot this book out in advance. She's not a plotter. And by the way, there's no overt violence on the page. If you see anything, it's in your head. There are no setups. And if that's your imagination, well, it's not really reality. It's not really spelled out. Things are implied, but where your imagination goes, well, that's all on you. Next, we've got, well, how well do you think you know your neighbors? Well, you might be thinking about that as you read The Block Party, which is written by a pseudonym for an author named Jamie Day. Well, when the book opens, we're in the Alton, um, Alton Road neighborhood, which uh, just like the neighborhood in the books we heard about a couple of minutes ago, uh, the neighborhood's very tony and wonderful. And the people are gathering for fun, but the tension starts riding high. And just as a shot is fired, things start to get really out of control. And then Jamie is going to shift you back to action a year ago. Okay, poof, what happened on the day of the Black Party is well into the future. Whew. But then we've got to see where all these tensions might have come from. As we move from one scenario to the next, the tensions progress. The intrigue and drama among both the adults and the younger folks by the time readers are through a year, they will note that many people who could not have been the recipient of that first fired shot, well, could they have been there? Few are safe. Most have reasons to have fired the shot and not all have alibis. Hmm, let's see what could have happened. Stories told through the eyes of a mother, Alex, and her daughter, Letty. Their different points of view work so well. It's a brisk summer, summer read, but you can read it even the winter because you know what? It's like a block party can happen at any time. And you'll understand how what you might be observing your neighbors a little bit more closely once you finish reading it. Little Monsters by Adrian Bedore is set up on the summer of 2016 on Cape Cod, an area that the author knows and loves. A place is as much a character in this book as anything else. It's the Gardner family goes up there every single summer. And the setting alone made this work as a summer read. Once again, can be read any time of year. Adam Gardner is reluctant in retiring at the age of 70. He really doesn't want to retire. And he wants to make one more discovery about whales before he heads off into the sunset. The whales that he loves. His son, Ken, is angling his chance to run for a congressional seat. Oh, did I tell you the year is 2016? Because that's kind of like really big in this book. He's enlisted his wife, Jenny, in his quest. She's the perfect spouse of a candidate. But who is this what she wants to be? 
Oh, and she's got a wee bit of a drinking problem. Hmm. Yeah, that's going on too. Ken's sister Abby is an artist and she's very much coming into her own. Her brother has more control over her life than she would like. And she's also best friends with Jenny, which means they know a lot about each other's lives. And after Jenny married Ken, there's a lot that stayed buried there too. And then there's Steph. I'm not going to give anything away by telling you about her, but uh, we're introduced to these characters in chapters up front where we really get to know them quickly. The story's all building towards Adam's 70th birthday party, which morphs from something casual into something bigger as time goes on. And of course, Jenny's in charge of executing this program. Jenny, the wife who drinks a lot and really does not want to be the candidate's wife. I hadn't read Adrian's best-selling memoir, Wild Game, um, but noticeably there's no mother in Little uh, Monsters. As Adrian said, she sold, told enough about a mother in her memoir. So no mother in this book, folks. In her two, just like she did, let me pull these materials out, inside the cage, um, Kelly, um, Bonnie Kistler puts the action right up front. Kelly McCann is a fighter. She defends men who are accused of sex crimes and she has a winning record. Look, it feels like she's like a traitor to women. This role has made her very successful. She commands a large salary. She has a lot at home to protect, so she needs the money. But then on the night of one of her biggest victories, she's sexually assaulted. And from there, the tables are turned. The way she was pro proactive about her defense is how is when she how she is when she joins with other victims to get revenge. What is happening for Kelly at home is of the utmost importance to her. And that layer of the story ups the stakes for her even more. Bonnie is a lawyer, though she hasn't practiced in a while. She uses a sly hand in so many ways in her storytelling. It's hard to tell about this book too much without giving the story away. As you read its rapid twists and turns, you'll marvel at knowing this writing was all organic instead of planned. I admire the quick, set, quick switches in her earlier work as well, The Cage and The House on Fire. So if you like her too, be sure to check those out. Next up is Reef Road, which is by Deborah Royce Goodrich. This was one of my first bets on selection. In fact, it was the first of 2023. And any book set in Palm Beach, Florida that opens on a beach is going to catch my eye in January. But it starts with a less than serene scene as a hand is found on the beach by some boys who are surfing on a beach that has been marked as closed. It sets up a crime to be revealed later on. The book's inspiration came from a horrific event from Deborah's mother's childhood. In December 1948, her mother's childhood best friend was brutally murdered in Pittsburgh. The assailant was never found, and the crime haunted her mother for years. The story was one that stayed with Deborah. She's woven a fictitious scenario of that homicide into the events happening in the present. And I have to tell you that the story is written from these two points of view, the writer and the wife. The writer remembers the crime that devastated her mother years ago, the death of her friend, Noelle. We read her perspective and she's not identified in the book until about halfway through. The wife is Linda who's a married woman with two children who have gone missing along with a husband. What happened to that happy family? The two characters are fully developed, and as you read, you wonder how they're going to come together. The first half of the setup that moves slowly, giving you clues, and the stories start to come together about halfway through the book, and I found myself absolutely riveted to the pages. 
it it's cleverly done. It feels like a braiding of both true crime and fiction. Deborah's writing is very visual, and I closed the book feeling like I'd been there at various points. Being on the beach or being in Florida in January was right nice. I read Gilly McMillan when she first wrote The Nanny, and I've looked forward to each of her books since then. And The Manor House, again, she doesn't disappoint. Here we have a young couple who's won the lottery. I know many have dreamed of this. Nicole and Tom move into a glass barn with state-of-the-art features and a design that's the envy of all of their friends. They have cool cars, and we know their lives feel very grand, and it's set up very, very eerily. But by page five, Tom is found dead in the swimming pool. As Nicole grieves, their questions, was it an accident or murder? Their neighbors, Ollie and Sasha, quickly come to her aid, but in many ways, they're suspects. So is their very strange housekeeper, Kitty. Oh, and what about Tom's old friend Patrick, friend Patrick, who comes with his handout looking for money all the time? He shows up to help Nicole through the days after Tom's death. The story is told day by day over the course of a week from the perspectives of Nicole, Sasha, a policeman named Tahal, Holly, Ollie, and others with a timeline until the day that Tom died. Oh, and uh, also we've got a timeline of exactly what happened the day Tom died, hour by hour. Twists and turns right up to the end, but I do want you to think about something. What really happened with the lottery ticket when Nicole found the winning numbers? It's just something for you to think about and also think about would there be joy in winning the lottery? Next up, we've got The Spy Coast by Tess Gerritsen. And you're gonna know her name, many of you who have been thriller readers for years. This is my favorite book of hers. She came to the idea of this book by living in her main town, where she learned that a lot of people that had retired there had worked in government in Washington, D.C., and they said not much more. And she learned along the way that they were retired CIA agents. From there came the idea for this book. A number of CIA agents that are now retired, living in Purity, Maine, gotta love the name of the town, and they're members of the Martini Club, which is what they call their book club. But their quiet existence is shattered when one of them, Maggie Bird, was running a chicken farm. And yes, Tess does know about chickens. She did run a chicken farm with her, or chicken um, uh, the hatchery with her son. Um, is There's now a body at the end of this woman's driveway. It's the woman that brought her a message earlier in the day that one of her former foes is still looking for her. So the club team, the Martini Club team, teams up to work with Maggie. And their efforts are complicated by the local police chief, Joe, who is thinking of this as a homicide and something said as something with international implications. So we're going to span the globe with Maggie traveling all around the place to places that Tess has been and knows a lot about. And we're going to have Maggie sort of questioning who is telling the truth and really who has her back. And she's going to revisit old haunts and reminisce about others. We're going to go to Bangkok, Istanbul, London and Malta. And once again, if I say this is Tessa's for best book, it's really saying something. Jessica Knowles, Bright Young Women, brilliantly looks at an unnamed serial killer, which you're all going to recognize, who we're going to recognize as the man who murdered two young women and seriously hurt two others in a horrific crime spree in a sorority house in Tallahassee in 1978. This is the same person who's been on the prowl from Seattle area before making his way to Colorado, where he killed and then escaped prison twice. And nothing would have happened in Tallahassee if he wasn't 
not allowed to escape from that prison twice. Along the way, at least 20 people, were, women were murdered, could have been over 100. It's not a true crime book, but rather fiction, as Jessica imagines what it must be like for her character, Pamela Schumacher, who was the president of the sorority where the crime took place. She saw the killer for a brief moment in this book, and she feels the need to calm the women in her house who are told to leave and then are brought back to school, with the only change being we changed the locks. Okay, that's all. And we painted the, book, the, the walls where the blood has spattered. At the same time, there's a woman named Tina Cannon who's arrived on campus, and she thinks this is the same man who abducted and killed her girlfriend, Ruth, in the Pacific Northwest. So together, these two women team up along with a local journalist and head to Colorado, hoping to catch up with the former kidnapper's former cellmate, hoping to learn more about him. And they bring questions for which there may be no answers. We quickly learn that defendant, as the killer is not as clever as we would like us to think he is, and to focus more on the survivors. It's told in different time periods, and it starts on the night of the crime, and it wraps on what is day 15,780 after the crime. I flew through it, balancing different stories and timelines. I love that while we identify the killer's identity really up front, Jessica never graced him by adding his name. It's brisk, smart, and is a really powerful read. Exiles wraps up Jane Harper's trilogy featuring Aaron Falk. I read her last standalone novel, The, the Survivors, and none of the Falk books, but I picked up this one, one and I slid right into the world. She did a terrific job of creating enough backstory for me to appreciate his character and understand what makes him tick. He's a forensic, uh, federal forensic accountant who solved many a case. He's come to a town in Southern Australia for christening, not on an assignment. It's an event that was postponed since the summer before after a young woman, a friend of the family, was missing at an uh, annual wine festival. Her daughter, Zoe, is found in her pram. And since then, her husband, Rohan, has been raising this daughter on his own back in Adelaide. People have been looking for Kim for a year, but nothing has been found except her sneakers near a drop-off near the water on some grounds beyond the festival area, a place where teens regularly gather to hang out and drink. But Falk quickly becomes immersed in the case as Kim's older daughter, Zara, is intent on finding her mother's uh, killer or whatever happened to her mom. She feels that the flyer she is going to have people hand out at this summer's wine festival will bring resolution to the case. Her winemaker dad was in a long relationship with Kim, but he knows they all need answers to move on. I only got to know Falk in one book, and I rather like him, and I was happy how Jane wrapped up his life, and now I want to go back and read The Dry and Force of Nature. Hank Philippi Ryan gives readers a total treat in The House Guest. Here's how it sets up. Alyssa McCallan's husband has left her and suddenly in her very posh and elegant lifestyle is being tugged away from her. When she married Bill, she gave up her friends and her work to live life on his terms. His glittering fun time with the country club set and now it's a very lonely one. She has the, he has the friends, but for the moment she still has the house. Actually two of them with all the trappings of a cushy lifestyle and they're all vanishing really fast. She's not sure what's gonna happen next. She hits rock bottom and she stops by a drink or two at a swanky bar. And there she meets Bree Warrens, who conveys that she's in a dangerous relationship. An altruistic, altruistic sweep that could only happen to a person who feels 
really totally alone, Alyssa says, Brie, come home and stay in my guest house. How many times have we told that picking up someone at a bar is not a good idea? The FBI shows up and Alyssa hears that Bill's got some things going on that, <clears throat> um, very shady. Between trying to get Bree's life under control as well as her own, they assume roles like Thelma and Louise. They're out to save themselves. But who's really in the guest house? Who is this house guest? And what can they do together to solve their problems? Twists and turns is a cat and, cat and mouse um, act that really ramps up in the last 20% of the book. And then, well, you're going to have to see what happens next. And The Other Mothers by Catherine Faulkner is one of the last books that I read this year. It just came out the beginning of December. So yes, I was reading fast for you folks. I love Greenwich Park, which was her last book, and I was excited about this one. When a young nanny is found dead in mysterious circumstances, new mom Tash is intrigued. She's been searching for a story to launch her career as a freelance journalist. But she's also been searching for something else, new friends to help her navigate motherhood. She sees in her son's new play group, The Other Mothers. I have to admit that when I was pregnant, the thing I scared the most of was The Other Mothers, hanging out with The Other Mothers. My husband used to tease me about this. These are a sleek, a group of sleek, sophisticated women who live in a neighborhood of tree-lined avenues and stunning houses, the sort of mothers that Tosh would like to be, but she's not. She doesn't have that much money, but the mothers welcome her into their circle, and she discovers the kind of life she's always dreamed of, their elegant London townhouses, their far cry from her cramped basement apartment, flat, and endless bills. She's quickly in their wealthy world of coffees, cocktails, and playdates, spending far more money than she should. But then another woman is found dead, and it's clear there's much more to the community that meets the eye. And the more that Tosh investigates, the more she's led uncomfortably close to the other mothers. These people really her friends? Or is there another more dangerous reason why she's been accepted into their world? Hmm, you've got to read to find out. Other Mothers completely delivers. And the last book for this year, it's a memoir. The one memoir on my list this year, which is Class by Stephanie Land. You're probably going to recognize Stephanie as the author of Made, which was a huge success when it came out in 2019. Um, I was actually the first person to interview Stephanie about Maid back in 2018 when we were at Book Expo. And I remember the two of us staring, standing, um, sharing at each other in a room going, book's not coming out till next January, but we're going to talk about it and we're going to make people want to read it. And it was one of her first interviews and I had really just met her like two seconds before. But from there, I had been so immersed in reading the book Maid. I wanted to see what she did next. Um, by the way, many of you know that Maid was also made into the Netflix series and was a huge hit on Netflix. So now we're picking up with class. And here's, we've got the next part of her story. She's now moved to Missoula, Montana. She's going to college. She's trying to finish getting her degree and she's applying for her MFA. And along the way, she's got her young daughter who's about six years old. And the daughter really keeps her on her toes. The daughter keeps her um, laughing because she's so spunky, but she's also feeling this huge responsibility, just as she felt in made of trying to take care for care of this child and of all the same things that she was up against in the other book. I wanted to read this because I wanted to see where she got to next. I've been following her on instant um, and on social media for years now, but I wanted to see how she'd write about this experience of applying for an MFA program. What happens to her, her love life, her non-love life, her, well, you'll have to read the book to find out everything else that happens to her along the way. 
But as the, 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 the cover of the book shows is she's still walking around with her backpack. She's still walking around with her daughter, with her own little book back, backpack and her toy and, you know, animal with her. And she's still got this kid that's a kid at heart. And what happens to the both of them next is also going to show how powerful their love was for each other and how they were there for each other all those years as being just the mom and the, the child together. I really, really enjoyed reading it. I actually listened to it on audio because I was trying to get a lot of reading done at the end of the year. Stephanie narrates it and it was absolutely terrific. And somehow telling the story in her own words was uh, super special. So there you've got it, guys. 44 books. I managed to do 44 books. Nothing has fallen on the floor except all the notes that I threw down. I hope you enjoy reading these books. I hope that I shared with you something that you want to take away and go read on your own. Um, and I'll be looking forward to, I've already started reading for next year. I've already got two Betsons picked and we'll see where I go from there. So thank you for being part of Book Reporter and Bookachino Live and all our other events throughout uh, 2023. We've already got a lot planned for 2024. So you rest up over the holiday break. We're back ready for action again on January 5th. See you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Book Reporter Talks To. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Support us by sharing on social media or by telling a friend about us. And we look forward to next time on Book Reporter Talks To.